Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of HSJ's Health Check podcast. My name is Nicholas Carding, and I'm joined this week by our correspondents Joe Talora and Annabelle Collins. This week, we'll hear about an emerging public sector, bas- public sector battle between NHS leaders and the police, with patients stuck in the middle. And we'll also discuss new and bold plans for the NHS app and what this means for the health service. But first, let's talk about a growing rift within our emergency services. Our correspondent, Annabel Collins, this week broke a story involving a very senior ambulance figure accusing the police of playing, quote, a high stakes game of chicken over the hasty rollout of a new care model. So, Annabel, tell us what this new care model is and why is it causing problems? Hi, thanks, Nick. Yeah, so the care model is called Right Care, Right Person, and it's an operational model, and it was first developed by Humberside Police, and it basically changes the way that emergency services respond to calls involving mental health concerns. And as I said, it was launched in Humberside because the police noticed that they were dealing with a very high number of calls Um, relating to welfare. I think they had an average of 1,566 incidents per month. So they wanted to do something to to see that police were kind of responding to the most, um, using their time in the best way, I suppose, and responding to the most um, important calls, I think. Um, So it, it actually took three years to properly um, implement, roll out and um, fund the right care, right person model in Humberside. And they did see the average calls reduce, I think, by around 500 a month. Um, and they said this equated to over 1,100 officer hours. And this allowed the force to relocate resources to um, other specialist teams. Um, and so, as you said, the whole the whole point of the model was to um, transfer the calls to the right agency. So health related calls weren't dealt with by the police as the default responder. Um, and so because of this success, it was decided, I think it was announced in July last year, the, the policing minister, Chris Philp, gave all police forces around England to implement this model. And um, I think it was in London, it was the uh, Met Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, announced it was going to be rolled out, and that was in November. But rather than the three years that Humberside took to finesse it, I think, you know, doing an impact assessment, working with partners, making sure that there wasn't, um, and we'll definitely come on to this, but that people weren't being left in the lurch, falling in between the police and the ambulance service. Um, London, for example, was given just four months to prepare for right care, right person, which is, is, you know, compared to the three years that it took in Humberside. That sounds like an incredibly short period of time to implement quite a significant uh, new care model. So Mm. what's been the impact in London then of that very short timescale being put in place? So early data from the London Ambulance Service has suggested that it's receiving an additional 200 to 250 incidents transferred from the Metropolitan Police per day. And there is an additional 400 incidents per month relating to concerns for welfare that have have come from healthcare professionals. 
um, which is, I think, is usually when um, someone um, leaves a healthcare environment in which they're being cared for. Um, and also, I haven't seen this data from other ambulance services around the country, but London is expecting the additional revenue cost of right care, right person will be around 4.7 million in 2024-25. And then looking at a full year effect of 6.8 million in 25, 26. And mm. I'm sure we'll kind of come on to the money perhaps a little bit later. Um, but this was all part of a letter sent by the chair of the Association of Ambulance Chief Executives in which they've set out numerous major concerns about the police implementation of this model. Mm, yeah, and, and that quote, which I said in my introduction, is very striking. It's not so often mm. we hear these senior figures um, say something so starkly, but he then used this quote, that the police are playing a high stakes game of chicken. Um, mm. Could you expand a bit on what exactly the NHS ambulance chief meant by that? And is that a fair description of what the police are doing? Mm, so this is referring to that gap in provision that I mentioned earlier, and this is kind of um, calls no, kind of referred to as concern for welfare. So mm. the calls are they cut they come in they're judged on a case by case basis, and some of them might merit an ambulance resp ambulance response after they've been transferred from the police, but there are some that don't meet the police threshold they don't quite meet the ambulance threshold mm. because there's no known a medical emergency or maybe the, the patient actually isn't present at all particularly if it's a healthcare professional making that call so it's it's not a police it's not the police's responsibility it's not the ambulance's responsibility and and in the letter the chair um Dara Mochi um of the association of ambulance chief execs says it's a, it describes it as a gray area and then that's where the, the quote came in about playing a high stakes game, game of chicken. Well, because the police have refused to attend the, the, and the call handlers told to hang up, dial 999 and ask for an ambulance. But then mm. when we know that there are really long waiting times for ambulances, is, is that the best use of their time? Is there going to be someone else who really needs an ambulance if an ambulance is sent? So they're saying that there's this gap in provision and it needs to be resolved locally and maybe mm. it will require further commissioning but as it stands there isn't any further commissioning and there isn't kind of a national okay we need to look at this this is something that's come up um i think the ambulance chiefs are seriously worried obviously about patient safety and mm. um just the lack of kind of impact assessment i suppose as well is quite shocking really i think in the rollout of this he makes that point very strongly yeah, I mean, it sounds like one of those, as you say, it's sort of grey area and it's that kind of classic gap starting to appear, isn't it, of patients mm -hmm. falling through um, the gap because it's the public sector hasn't worked out which which part needs to look after this set of patients. Previously, they mm -hmm. would have been the police then that would have dealt with these people. Is that is that right? But the police are now effectively kind of pushing them onto the ambulance um, trust, which isn't being funded to take them effectively. Is that Yes, that right? that, I think yeah. so. I mean, it probably depends because it is a kind of a case by case thing. Maybe mm. an ambulance would have been sent if a patient was present and there was a welfare concern, probably more likely to be the police. Mm. And as those calls are now being um, forwarded on, it's like, well, I think the call handlers are obviously in a very difficult position. Do they just ignore the call or do they send in an inappropriate ambulance it's I think mm. that's a really really hard decision to make and obviously there isn't yeah as I said there's just no local provision to deal with that yeah and it, I read from your story obviously there is 
and you mentioned it there, the impact on, on the staff um, mm. is quite considerable. You've got the call handlers, as you say, that are faced with this very difficult decision. But I think also in your story, and you might have touched on it already, there is also a, a consequence for the ambulance staff that are then left to deal with these patients, especially if they are of a nature where the call out actually is potentially they could put the staff in a potentially dangerous mm. situation. And I think mm. well, there's some numbers around how many incidents potentially staff have come to risk of, of having experienced. Yeah, that's right. I thought that was um, quite a striking line of the letter. Um, and he was uh, Mr. Mockery said that he was particularly concerned of reports where police didn't attend and this had seen patient harm and paramedics being assaulted. Mm. And his argument is, well, these incidents meet the threshold for police attendance because there's kind of a threshold has been sent and set, sorry, in the National Partnership Agreement, where it's like, actually, these are calls that police do need to attend. And he he's suggesting in certain bits of the country, and he didn't elaborate on exactly where. So I'd be very interested to know that. But there is excessive, um, excessive over application of our right, right care, right person in mm. some police forces. And in terms of um, incident numbers, he said since March 2020, staff, ambulance staff have raised concerns in relation to 160 incidents, citing the new model as a factor, with 33 of them involving some degree of harm, which mm. is, certainly isn't insignificant. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what um, what's being done nationally about this then? So obviously this, these concerns were set out in a letter to the, I think, Health Select Committee. Uh, are they holding mm, some kind Steve of... Bryan. Yeah, are they holding some kind of investigation into this model or is it part of a wider mental health investigation? Um, mm. do, do we know kind of what's what's happening nationally to try and deal with this this issue that's been highlighted? Mm. Well, there's actually been kind of very little in terms of what's being done nationally. I mean, in terms of the funding, there's, I've spoken to a lot of, of our charities and mental health leaders um, and NHS Confederation who are all concerned about how this model is going to be funded. As it stands, there isn't any national funding and um, mental health chief executive um, from Birmingham actually gave evidence at the end of last year to ministers and said that something in the region of 260 million might be needed to enable the whole of England to be able to provide care in this model appropriately and that obviously means safely as well but as it as it stands there isn't any funding that's forthcoming and again this was this was in the letter as well he really didn't pull any punches um sort of acknowledged that that such a significant system there was it, it had been such a significant system change mm. with clear risks for some of the most vulnerable people a lack of an in impact assessment and lack of funding mm. um so it's it's really unclear i think i think that um there's a, you know a big question to be answered and i think I've, I've spoken to people who are really worried about what other pots are going to be raided in order to to fund this as, as I set out before you know there are lots of little intricate bits okay what about people when who are um, phoning in with welfare calls how's that going to be dealt with how are they going to be looked after that requires commissioning and and money essentially as well and mm. I and I should add as well after the story went live I did receive a response from the assistant chief constable of the national police chiefs council and the lead for this right care right person jenny jenny gilmer and she said that they are grateful to ace the ambulance um 
Association of Ambulance Chief Executives, she said they're grateful for their support of the right care, right person approach. And she thanked them for raising these challenges, which they said they were going to going to work through. And they talked, she talked about detailed guidance and regular group meetings to share learning and kind of just really emphasised how they're trying to work with partner agencies, mm. the third sector to establish their processes but I think it's just a it's really just finding its feet but the impact of that on on patients on on health professionals is going to be huge and Claire Murdoch um, the director for mental health for NHS England made this point at the end of last year and she said it's a major change for services already under enormous pressure mm. I think that's a really I think that's a really succinct way of summarizing this yeah. and well this kind of call to action from the ambulance chiefs I think hopefully it's it's listened to and something's done about it yeah I mean it sounds like the concerns are gathering momentum and I, I guess hopefully will be, be dealt with in some way but it feels, I mean, it feels like, you know, we're talking about, I suppose, mental health patients here. And I just wonder, I guess that old cliche, isn't it, of if this was, it always seems to be the in mental health services that these changes happen quite sometimes quite quickly. I don't know if you would put in a new care model in the acute world as quickly, you know, with potentially such major consequences. It kind of feels like it's, it's sort of yet another mental health failure, if you like. Um, but that's probably um, separate discussion altogether. Um, and uh, just lastly, Annabelle, on the mental health front, the, the, you also reported uh, there's going to be a new uh, bit of a sort of national leadership change in the mental health space. Is um, is, is this this issue perhaps going to be dealt with by the the new um, leadership? What what's happening nationally? Oh yeah, that's a that's a good point, Nick. Um, yeah, so I reported earlier this week actually that NHS England is recruiting its first ever director for mental health and neurodiversity um, rather than the kind of national clinical director role where there, until recently Tim Kendall, Professor Tim Kendall was in that role and he left at the end of last year so yeah it could be I think it will certainly be a big part of their work um, working closely with Claire Murdoch too I'm sure but I think that whoever you know is given the job will be looking at this closely and talking to ambulance chief executives mental health trust chief executives you know acute trusts of course as well and partners the police to try and make sure this is sort of safe and that this model works but without any more money it's very hard to see how they can make it safer and how they can make it work for patients and the emergency services alike mm. it's a worrying story and I'm sure we'll be seeing some updates uh, in the, this year, uh, Annabelle. So thank you for talking us through that and we look forward to, the, to following it. Um, so we're going to turn to the other topic of the podcast uh, today, which is going to be about the NHS app. And there have been some quite big announcements uh, about the app recently. And the app is getting a lot of attention from what's left of NHS England's uh, digital team. Joe, uh, you're, um, you've been following this story. So what, what are NHS England's plans for the app now? Yeah, so things, um, sort of developments around the app have been a little bit quiet for a while now, but we're finally starting to see some movement. So speaking at the NHS England board meeting the other week, um, Joe Harrison, who is the National Director for G Digital Channels at NHS England, 
um, just sort of outline what the next steps are and, and, and where we're at. And essentially the key target now for the app is that within five years, one in three patient interactions with the NHS should be through digital channels, whether that be the app and the website, um, not including on the telephone though. Um, so within five years, you know, one in three pe- one in three interactions between patients and the NHS should be done digitally. Um, speaking of our... A bold, a bold target. Yeah, well, it, it isn't. It, it isn't. Um, speaking at HSJ's Digital Transformation Summit, um, Joe Harrison did say, you know, that's quite a conservative target. It's very mm-hmm. achievable. And he said, you know, realistically, a lot more people should be accessing the NHS through the app than, than that target might suggest. So um, it, it looks like within five years that that should be definitely doable. How uh, does he plan to get there then? How, what's the sort of strategy for getting more more uptake and use of the app over the next year or two mm, so i think it's now it's about we've got sort of the basic functionality of the app and i think now it's about you know inc- inc- including more features through the app um, and sort of advertising those more widely so the big opportunity with the app came with the pandemic and the introduction of the the covid19 passports obviously there was a massive spike in registrations and downloads of the app when we needed to use it to to get into venues and to travel abroad um that that kind of drove the initial spike in uptake and and downloads um what what the case is now is that it is being used for those other purposes it's not we're not quite seeing the numbers that we did at the start but apparently joe harrison said less than 0.2 percent of interactions with the app now are related to to the covid19 passport so Mm -hmm. There is a lot more functionality now, um, and that is looking to be increased. So at the minute, you can um, view messages from primary or secondary care providers regarding appointments and and things like that. You can order repeat prescriptions and you can view your medical records. Uh, A lot of that requires input from primary care. So I think something like 85 percent of primary care providers now feed data into the app, which allows patients to view their medical records. So there's an issue around getting the rest of those providers on board, feeding data into the app, and then also advertising to the public that they can access those features. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's fascinating, really. I, I think that the NHS, the story of the NHS app includes one of the kind of biggest uh, reversals or, or changes to a policy that, that we've seen, certainly in the tech space. Um, I remember back in I think it was 2019 when we had NHSX and Matthew Gold was the CEO. And one of the first things he said was that he didn't want the NHS app to become this, you know, all singing, all dancing app. He said it was much better to allow lots of other apps to be used by the NHS and patients and that the NHS app could be one of those, but that he didn't want to kind of throw any more resource uh, or responsibility at that app. And then obviously, as you say, COVID happened and suddenly it's gone completely the other way. And now the mood music seems to be everything has to go through the app uh, mm. as much as possible. Um, you know, the COVID passport, as you say, is a, a thing of the past. Thankfully, we don't need that anymore. Um, and now it's the sort of NHS England are really investing quite heavily in um, all this new functionality Um prescribing and messages and I mean um, do you get a sense of of uh, when all the GPs and all the hospitals will have onboarded all the kind of necessary technology to make sure that patients can access 
everything they need through the app to, did he sort of set any um, timelines for that is that going to be within the next five years as well it's, it's not entirely clear sort of how long that will take or how that's going to be done I think the, the uptake's been quite good so far and I think the hope is that yeah within five years most if not all providers will be on board but that's not sort of a firm target that's set in stone what we do know about sort of time frames is is what what new features are going to come to the app and how long that's going to take one of the things that Joe Harrison mentioned was that in the next sort of 12 to 18 months there's going to be more of a focus on he called sort of pre-primary diagnostics so sort of preventative care wellness um so in the next 12 to 18 months directly through the app people will be able to book vaccinations screenings be able to order a digital health check for cardiovascular health things like that mm. Um, and, you know, there's an acknowledgement that's not cutting edge stuff, but you, you have to start somewhere, is, mm. is what he said. Um, and I think the more um, the more these features are added, the more people use it, I think there'll be more pressure potentially on providers to to make sure that they are feeding into the app. Um, as I said, there's still that sort of 20 percent to go in terms of viewing medical records. But that that's just one element of, of the app is viewing the records. I think the other elements about being able to actually allowing the patient to actually do things rather than just sort of see their record that's going to be more of a focus moving forwards yeah I mean I was at our our summit as well and I I did there was one thing he said which I thought was quite interesting and actually two things he said the first was that he said what was it he said um we're trying to do the kind of thing that Amazon have been doing for Mm. you know a decade or so and he cited the um example of when you buy i think it was when you buy a pillow from amazon for, for your bed amazon also offers you the chance to buy um bed sheets or or duvets mm. and he was kind of making the point that the nhs app needs to become a lot more i suppose sort of intuitive to individual patients needs um, based on the mm. use of the app and then the other comment he made which i liked was that he also stressed that for all the move to you know moving patients to this more digital platform the app is not going to become the Ryanair healthcare app where yeah. you know you go take everything too too far to it for digital <laughs> level so it, it's quite he, he's certainly got got vision hasn't he and he knows how to articulate it yeah I think so and I think he's done a good job of sort of setting expectations I think he acknowledges that there's a lot of hard work gone into it and that it is at a better stage than it was one or two years ago but it's still quite far off being what, what they envisioned it I know the the Health and Social Care Select Committee last year did their report on the future of digital in the NHS and the app was a key part of that. And um, I think there is a vision across the board that this app should be doing a lot more within a few years time. But yeah, I think that the, the Amazon comment especially was was quite telling. I think he said, you know, 20, 30 years ago, whenever it was, all you could do on Amazon was all the books. And now, you know, it can predict customer needs and predict desires. And I think maybe not to that extent, but there's a an expectation that eventually we'll be able to use digital tools to um you know predict you know care and and where patterns and where to direct resources and things like that mm, yeah i mean let's hope it doesn't take 20 or 30 years for the nhs to get to that point <laughs> but having said that i wouldn't be surprised if it does uh and i think that's that's why I also why i said i thought it was a bold target at first to to say that you know a third of interactions should be digital because i remember uh, again going back to the the uh the matt hancock and nhsx days um 
a very nostalgic podcast this is turning out to be but um i remember matt hancock said all appointments or all interactions pretty much should be digital first unless there was a, a you know compelling clinical reason um not to have it and i remember it caused quite a stir at the time and i'm not sure the nhs really you know they it didn't really get to anywhere close to that point obviously there's now the covid happened and there's a lot more focus on tech and you know virtual virtual appointments but you know, I think it's fair to say most appointments are still happening in person. Um, mm. So it, it, although it's kind of, yeah, I think Joe, Joe Harrison saying it's conservative to say a third within five years, I think it, the reality is based on history, it, it might just take a bit longer than five years yeah. to get get to that level. But um, yeah. Uh, do you Nick, want to come I in wanted Annabelle? to ask, yeah, I was just thinking, you mentioned Matt Hancock. Just, it was his whole kind of thing, wasn't it? A digital digital ambitions does he actually make much progress when it comes to <laughs> developing the app did it did it kind of take off at all well i think it's um you know he talked a big game on tech uh matt hancock which was in some ways a good thing because it kind of um you know increased sort of tech uh, scrutiny and, and spending um the, the app like i said not much happened to the app the, the main thing that happened to the app was not due to any politician as such it was covid and obviously the decision to set the um the passport um the covid passport as uh, kind of the put that on the app the nhs app made it made the nhs app suddenly kind of massively uh, more popular so i don't think matt hancock could really take too much plaudit for that i'm sure he would have tried to uh, yeah. but I think it, it <laughs> we'd was have heard probably... about it <laughs> yeah. yeah so uh, yeah so I'm not sure there was that much progress mm. sort of directly inspired by by him but um, it's interesting of course as well you know they are kind of you know nailing their colours to the mast a little bit with the app because there are other apps other health apps out there um, some of which have been developed a lot longer and a lot more you know heavily than the NHS app and I think Joe Harrison also made the point at the moment the NHS app is almost just like a website when you actually log on to it it doesn't feel very uh, glitzy shiny snazzy it's you know it's just sort of it feels a bit like you're browsing the NHS website when you're on the app so he was I think clear that that also needs to change and with the NHS you've always got that issue of well there's only going to be so much work as much as the funding allows it and all it will take is for some funding to be diverted for the app to kind of slow down progress so um, it's good that there's lots of optimism but yeah I'm, I'm a bit worried about the longevity of it Conjo. Interesting on the point you just made about um, you know other apps in other spaces I think he also mentioned that there are sort of other companies interested in working with the app and, and he did say that you know eventually it needs to be a sort of two-way street and it, it shouldn't be optional for um, other suppliers to to inter interact with the app I think in terms of things like patient messaging and um, patient engagement portals there's a big drive to integrate that kind of stuff within the app and from, from what he said it seems to be the direction of travel that um, you know they want to get you know other suppliers on board but they have to also be willing to to work with the NHS and integrate within the app as well. Yeah he basically told suppliers that weren't interested to like it or lump it didn't he basically saying like if you don't play ball with the you know integration with the app then you're not going to get uh, any change out of the NHS so that's um, strong language which again kind of makes sense I suppose but clearly Energy England are um, investing heavily in the app and that that's what they see as the main digital channel going forward. Um, thanks very much Annabelle and Joe uh, we've run out of time um, 
So uh, all that remains is to say thank you both for coming on and thank you to the listeners for listening. You can get in touch with us to suggest any topics or any questions by emailing annabelle.collins at hsj.co.uk. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks a lot for listening. Goodbye.